Morning. I have thoroughly enjoyed the worship this morning that we've already enjoyed. Uh, our eyes were turned to Jesus, weren't they? And it is well with our souls as they are. Well, this morning I'm, I am thrilled to be with you. I'm looking forward to looking at Matthew 18 with you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 18. I teach at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and one of the things that I've been tasked with, obviously, is teaching. And so a number of years ago, when I was going through school myself, I took a class that focused on the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was a master teacher. He knew how to control a crowd. If you look, he had crowds upwards of 5,000 people. And guess what he didn't have? He didn't have one of these things. He didn't have air conditioning. He didn't have any of those sorts of things. People were sitting in the sun, but they gladly listened to him because he knew how to communicate. And so I studied Jesus. I studied his communication methods, and I thought, how can I be a better teacher as I look at Jesus? You know, one of the things Jesus did is he told a lot of stories. I remember distinctly one of my professors uh, telling me, Tim, if you preach the same message four weeks in a row, only a few people will notice. If you tell the same illustration twice in a year, everyone's going to come up and say, hey, you've told that one before. <laughs> There's something about us that's, that makes us designed to want stories, to listen to them, to be drawn into them. And so Jesus knew that, and he gave us the most incredible stories. And one of the ones we're going to look at today is in Matthew chapter 18, but I'm afraid sometimes we look at Jesus' stories wrong. Perhaps we can take the view that Jesus' stories are fantastic for children. They've got a lot to learn from these stories. And I think if we take that position, what we fail to realize is that almost every one of Jesus' parables is deeper than you've ever gone with it. <laughs> And, and I'm not trying to criticize you. I would say that to myself. Every time I deeply study one of Jesus' parables, I see layers of meaning and of significance that I, I, had, I had not noticed before. These are, are rich stories. And one of the things I think we really miss out on is that we fail to recognize that he tells his stories for a reason. If I ask today, how many of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? I dare say that nearly every hand in the room would grow, go up. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan. But if I then ask the question, how many of you know why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, many eyes would drift away from me. <laughs> I'm used to that as a teacher. You know, you begin to ask a question and all of a sudden everyone's somewhere else. Jesus tells his stories for a reason. There, every time he tells a story, it's because there's something in the context for which that story is a powerful, po powerful illustration. And so what I'd like to do today is to not only look at the parable that was read for us this morning, but to look at the broader context as well. Start with me in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become, one, like, one, become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this teaching section begins with this question from the disciples. They say to Jesus, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Now we know, because we've read the rest of the scripture, that this was a pretty important question for the disciples. How important? Important enough that a couple of the disciples had their mom get involved with the discussion. Do you remember that? They said, hey mom, can you go ask Jesus that we can have the right and the left hand? So the disciples were very much like us. They were sinful people learning how to navigate life with Jesus. And here they're debating over who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus, instead of getting into the midst of all these debates, brings a little child among them. In the ancient world, uh, the children were not, uh, not well loved. I'll put it that way. They're not well respected. Uh, there are lots of children around. And so when Jesus brings this child into the midst and essentially says what you need to do is to become like a child, he's saying you need to humble yourselves. In fact, he says that you won't even enter the kingdom unless you humble yourself. And so we get the sense that this whole context is somehow about humbling oneself. Notice then he goes on in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Again, he's actually continuing the humility theme. He's saying, receive a little child in my name. That is, humble yourself to serve one of these little ones. And do whatever you can to avoid offending. That is, causing one of these little ones, someone who's just come to faith in Christ, do everything you can not to make them stumble away from Christ. He uses this illustration, which is a bit lost on us. Uh, likely you've not seen a great millstone. If you've ever been to Israel, you probably have, though. They have these massive stones that humans really couldn't turn. Instead, you would hook cattle to, and they would walk in a circle, and they would grind the seed. And Jesus says, if you had two options before you, cause a young believer to stumble and to stop following Christ, or to tie a millstone around your neck, drop it into the sea. He says, choose that one. And he's illustrating how significant it is that we must live a life that causes no offense to God's people. And then he talks about the temptations towards sin. He says in verse 7, Woe to the world, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's, to, it's necessary that they come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So he continues this theme about seeking to avoid to be the one who causes your brother to fall. And then he gives this parable of the lost sheep in verse, 9, verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that an angel in, in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones 
should perish. Again, he's stressing the necessity of us living our lives in such a way that we care about others, particularly that we care about the lost sheep. Now, you're probably familiar with the parable of the 99. And a lot of times, this is given in reference to an unbeliever. Somebody who's out there, and we need to go find an unbeliever and bring him to the sheepfold. But if you notice the context, that is not Jesus' point here. The one who wanders is a member of the sheepfold. Somebody who's come in, who's embraced the gospel to some degree, but begins to wander. I bet, as I say that, you're thinking of somebody among this congregation. Now, I don't know who you're thinking of. Uh, Pastor Nathan has not talked to me about that. But I just know that in my personal church, I'm thinking of someone right now. More than one person, certainly, among my congregation. And Jesus' concern is that we seek out these ones who have begun wandering. And Jesus says his great desire is that they would come back to the sheepfold. And then you'll notice it's in this context then that Jesus gives this great passage on what we call church discipline. And you almost shudder when you hear the word discipline, don't you? Because it just sounds so negative. But if you read this in the context... Church discipline is God's way of seeking out the lost sheep. We never want to go into church discipline. But if I began to wander, I want my church to seek me. I do. I want my brother to come to me and say, Tim, you're, you're embracing sin. Turn. You're being deceived by sin. Turn. And if I don't listen to him, I want the elders of my church to come to me and say, Tim, you're beginning to wander. Turn. And if I don't listen to them, I want the church as a whole to reach out in love and care and compassion to me. Now, if you'll notice, one of the things about this church discipline passage, it says, if your brother sins against you, go. Do you see, sometimes the offenses your brother has sinned against you. And if you are the one who's been sinned against, it actually implies that you would go and, and express the need for that repentance. Now, again, let's look at the broader context. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about humility. This sets up the situation then in which Peter asks a question. Notice verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Uh, there are some manuscripts that say 77. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But, he, but here's the situation. Peter comes to Jesus. He's just been told that if a brother sins against him, that he needs to pursue that person with the intention of forgiving them if they repent. And so Peter asks a question. Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? 
Now, in order to understand the significance of this question, I think we have to understand one of the teachings that we know from later Judaism appears to have been taught at this time, which was that if someone sins against you, you and this is what the, the Jews thought at the time, if someone sins against you, you need to forgive them three times. And then if they sin against you a fourth time, obviously they didn't really mean it, so you don't have to forgive them. Read in that context, then, when Peter comes and he says, Jesus, <clears throat> how many times do I have to forgive my brother? I'm willing to forgive seven times. You almost see that, I mean, I think he's still jockeying for position, right? I mean, he, he not only more than doubled the amount everybody else was saying, but he went to the number seven. I mean, this is just great. Jesus had to have been impressed with Peter. But what does Peter, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, all right, Peter, let's play that game. How many times should you forgive your brother? Will you say seven? Well, I'll say multiply that by 70. Or there are some translations that say 77. The point actually isn't lost, whether it's 490 or 77, because Jesus' point is not. Make sure to keep a tally when your brother sins against you. Because, you know, once you get to the 78th time, you don't have to do it anymore. Isn't that great? <clears throat> Clearly, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus was simply saying, whatever amount you were thinking about, just keep, just keep going up. Now, maybe that strikes a question in your heart. If so, I think that's the same question Peter had in his heart. We'll come back to that question in just a moment. But notice verse 23. This is when Jesus begins to tell the parable. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. And you'll notice he begins with the word therefore. So he's connecting this parable to what he had just been instructing. And he talks about a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring or begging him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. All right, let's stop there. We're going to walk through this parable in three stages. There are three acts of the parable. We just read the first act. And <clears throat> the situation actually is not all that unique in the ancient world. A king would be the one who had mo most of the money. There weren't banks in that day, or at least they weren't as developed as we see today. So if you needed a loan, guess who you went to? You went to the guy who had the money, so the, you went to the king. And you asked the king for a certain sum of money, and he lent it to you. And then at some point, he said, I will call for you to return that, that money. And so here's a situation of a king. Maybe he's entering into a building program. We're not sure. But he, he needs some of those funds to do whatever he wants to accomplish. So he calls in his servants. And as he's calling in his servants, he calls in one particular servant. And this servant <clears throat> owed him as the text tells us, 10,000 talents. Is that a lot of money? I mean, it's hard to tell. What's, ten, what's a talent? I don't even know. I, I've been to countries uh, where 
You know, the, the currency exchange is 10,000 to one U.S. dollar. It's 10,000 talents, a lot of money. I would dare say to you that if you were in the congregation that was listening to Jesus say this, you would have gasped in shock when he said 10,000 talents. The NIV translates that 10,000 bags of gold. <clears throat> Why does it translate it that way? Well, what I'd like to do today is to consider how much money this was. And let's compare it to a day's wage. So a day's wage would generally at that time be one denarii. We're going to run into that term in just a bit. One denarii you'd get for a day's wage. And you could work about, you could get about 300 denarii a year. You say, well, there's 365 days. Yeah, but there's Sabbath days, and then there are certain Sabbath weeks that you couldn't work. So you'd make about 300 denarii a year. Well, how long would it take you to make one talent? Well, 6,000 denarii was equal to one talent. 6,000 days wages. So after 20 years, you have a talent. You just owe 9,999 more. It would take 200,000 years of labor to come up with 10,000 talents. This man owed an amount that was astronomical, beyond even comprehension. We might translate this, he owed 10 gazillion dollars. <clears throat> it's shocking. In fact, historians tell us at this time that if you could accumulate all of the money that existed in the world at that time, in that region, and you were to accumulate it in one spot, it wouldn't even come to 10,000 talents. This man owed more money than was in existence. And I know sometimes we may feel like that, but this guy literally did. But you know, that's not actually the most surprising thing that we find in this text. The most surprising thing is the response of this king. The man owes 10,000 talents. And he's going to do the logical thing in that day, which was sell the man into slavery. If you got into uh, a monetary debt that you couldn't pay, uh, they, they thought of day's wages and money as equal sums, and so you owed 20,000 years of wages. You weren't ever going to get that back, or 200,000 years. So, so instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to sell you into slavery and get what we can back for it. But this man falls down on his knees, <clears throat> and he begs the king. He pleads with him, and he says, be merciful to me, and I will pay back everything. Now, let me suggest, suggest that that word everything is our first hint that there's something wrong. Can this man pay back everything? He certainly cannot. But he says, have mercy on me, and I will pay back everything. And just think of the monumental mercy of this king. I mean, <clears throat> just imagine with me that, uh, uh, let's talk about Alan for just a few minutes. Uh, let's say Alan and I are at the seminary, and, uh, and Alan's taking a class, and it's Tuesday, uh, the precious Taco Tuesday day. 
And so after class, we're going to, to the, the Mexican restaurant down the street. And um, as we're walking there, Alan and I, he, he does one of these, oh, I forgot my wallet, you know, as he's wont to do. And, uh, <clears throat> and he says, uh, Dr. Miller, can you spot me a few bucks for tacos? And I say, sure, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it. And he says, I'll, I'll pay you back. I say, okay. And then next week comes, and the next week comes, and Alan never pays me back for the tacos. Would I be deeply distressed about that? No, I probably would totally forget about it and move on with life, and I would never think about it again. Let's imagine, though, that Alan came to me and said, Hey, Dr. Miller, listen, the perfect house just popped up. My wife and I want to purchase this house, and it's going to be $150,000. But you know how hot the market is? And I just can't pay for it. You know, if I go for the loan route, I'm never going to get this thing. So I have to offer cash. Could I borrow $150,000? And, you know, because I'm that kind of guy, I'm like, sure, why not? <laughs> and so I pull out my wallet, give him the cash. All right, so now he's got the $150,000. He says, I'm going to sell my other house. And after I sell that house, I'm going to give the money right back to you. And so, you know, I, I wait a few weeks. I hear that he sold the house. And then I wait a few more weeks, and he never pays me back. Would I be as inclined to just say, oh, it's just $150,000, as I was to say, oh, it's just $5? I certainly would not. Because the greater the debt, the more significance there is. And here this king wasn't owed just a little bit. He was owed him monumental amount. And yet, the most shocking thing in this parable is that he's willing to forgive. So, what happens? If you were to write the rest of the parable, what would happen? I know what I would do. The man who has just received this great news would walk out. And you know what? This guy has never been that color of blue before. And it's like, I've never seen these flowers in the grass. They're yellow. Oh, dandelions, I don't care. They're beautiful. I love this. And, and you just, life would be grand. But what happens? Well, let's read. Verse 28 is where we'll continue in uh, act number two. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Let's stop there. Act number two has us observing the man seemingly right after he goes out of the throne room from the king. And as he walks out. And he's on his way back to his own house. He sees a man on the journey. And he knows that that man owes him a hundred days wages. And what does he do? He runs up to him, literally putting his hands around the man's neck. The word here refers to, to the process of choking someone to death lifts him seemingly from the ground and says, pay me what you owe. The man getting free from his grasp falls on his knees and with almost 
precise verbiage, almost exactly what the first man had just said to the king, this man says, have mercy on me, and I will pay you. Now, you will notice that there's one word that's different. He doesn't say, I will pay you everything, and there's a reason for that. It's pretty clear that he will. A hundred days' wages was not a small trifle. I mean, just imagine, you know, that's about three months' wages for you. And I'm sure you wouldn't scoff at three months' wages. I mean, that's a pretty significant amount. And this man owed him a significant amount. And he says, you must pay me back. He says he can't. And so he throws him into prison, and he's going to be in prison until he can pay the debt, which is, which is a problem because now you're in a cycle, right? How are you going to pay to get out if you can't work because you're in prison? And then some of these prisons would make you pay to stay in the prison. It was just a cycle from which you likely weren't going to ever escape. This is a bad, bad end. So what happens from here? Let's go to act number three, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Let's stop there. We'll come to that final verse in just a moment. So in act number three, what happens? Well, other servants, they've observed from afar what just took place. And they knew the offer of forgiveness given to the first servant. They were shocked by it. And then they were shocked by the fact that this man didn't offer any forgiveness to this other man. And so they come to the king and they say, King, do you realize what this guy has done? He's thrown our other friend into prison because he couldn't pay this 100 days wages. But we know that you forgave him 200,000 years wages. And the king is angry. I mean, the, the language is he's wrathful. And he calls the man back in and he says, I offered to forgive that debt, but I will not. You will pay it. And the language here indicates that he's handed over to the jailers. In the ESV here, we have a footnote that says to the torturers, because that's actually the language that's, that's referred to. It's people who would torture in prison. Now, there are some who misread this text. Uh, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church holds that this passage refers to uh, purgatory. Because it refers to a man who seemingly was forgiven, but then had to pay a debt until he could enjoy heaven. But here's the reason that's not a persuasive argument. Well, two reasons. One, if your only place of a doctrine or your only place that you can defend a doctrine is in a parable, you're in trouble. Okay? Second, how long would it have taken this man to have repaid his debt? I think the point is not so much that this man owes a debt that he could repay. The point is that he owes a debt that he could never repay. He'll never get out. So this is eternal judgment that Jesus refers to. So what do we do 
with this story? What is Jesus telling us? So let me bring just a few points of application and we'll be done. The first point of application is this. Your sin is worse than you ever imagined. And you say, now wait up. <laughs> how did I get into this parable? And how do you, how do you what, what are you talking about my sin? I'm convinced that Jesus wants us to read ourselves into this parable. You're, a, you're somebody in the parable. And initially, all of us start as the first debtor. What does the 10,000 talent debt represent? It represents your sin. The scripture tells us that we are all sinners in Adam. Uh, we are born into sin, but we gladly choose sin. And now we have a 10,000 talent debt. It's popular in uh, the cultural psyche of our day. To imagine that eternal judgment is going to be this way. When we die, we go into the, before the gates of heaven and there's a big scale. And on the scale, we have two sides. On the one side, we have our bad deeds. On the, on the other side, we have our good deeds. And what we hope for is that by the time we reach that day, the good deeds will have outweighed the bad deeds. And that's a really popular thing to think. There's one major problem with that analogy, or, or maybe we could say it's somewhat correct, but if it's correct, it starts this way. There's a 10,000 talent debt that's immediately laid on, your, on the scales. And friend, spend your whole life doing everything you can to be good. Give away all your money. Spend every waking moment serving in the local church. Take communion every time it's offered. Do everything you possibly can. And the scales of justice will not move. And friends, if I could take all of our righteousness, every one of you, if I could somehow siphon it from you and take it to myself, and now it was mine, and I were to weigh it on this side of the scale, it still wouldn't move. It couldn't budge. The debt that we owe before God is so large that we can never repay it. And that's bad news. But there's good news. Remember I told you in the parable that the most surprising thing wasn't the debt. The most surprising thing was the king. Because the king represents to us the offer of forgiveness. You see, our debt is greater than we ever imagined, but the grace of God is even greater than we ever imagined as well. Do you see, you begin with the 10,000 talent debt, and no matter your righteous deeds, they'll never pay it. But there was one who came, and he said, I will pay 10,000 talent debts. And the Lord Jesus Christ took the sin of mankind, all who will trust in him, he took their sin upon himself on the cross, and it was on his shoulders that it weighed on him on that cross. Your sin, if you trust in him. He took it from you. And the scripture tells us he was not done there. He then took his 10,000 talent payment of righteousness, and he stuck it on the other scale. And now, here I am, 
And you know what? I'm embarrassed about stupid things I do. I sin. You sin. And stuff is putting on here, but you know what? It's never going to weigh against the 10,000 talent payment Christ has made on my account. He's redeemed me. He's paid the penalty. He's given me His righteousness. Oh friends, the most glorious thing about this passage is not, or the most surprising thing, is not the amount of sin that we begin with, but it's the amount of righteousness that Christ gives. The fact that He's willing to take the payment on Himself at the cross. Of course, the challenge here is that we must admit, we must accept that in fact we owe 10,000 talent debt. And it very well may be that there's someone here today that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've come in here and you say, okay, well, I know some 10,000 talent debtors. That's not me. That's not me. And the rub is this, that until we can admit that, yes, I am among the 10,000 talent debtors, the offer of forgiveness merely stands as an offer. We must come to Christ and say to Him, I am as you say I am. I'm a 10,000 talent debtor and I need your mercy. I cannot pay it all. I cannot pay it all. Thank you that you paid it all. So the first point that we learn from this parable is our sin is worse than we ever imagined. The second point is that the offer of forgiveness is more, even more astonishing the third thing that we learn from this parable is that those who are forgiven must forgive. This is no optional addition, but Jesus is literally saying that those who are forgiven must forgive. Read the last verse of the parable. He says, So also, in like manner to this man who was not forgiving to his brothers, in the same way my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now we need to be careful here. Because we can really easily read into this. That God will forgive me if I forgive other people. But if we do that, we've got it completely backwards. Jesus' point here is, if you forgive other people, then you've been forgiven. Because here's what he does to us when he forgives us. He makes us forgivers. The title of this message is Forgiven People Forgive. Forgiven People Forgive. I remember sitting across from a, from a man at a correctional facility, a young man. He was 16 years old, somewhere around there. And uh, he was in the correctional facility. I wasn't. But uh, as we were having a discussion about the direction of his life and how he had gotten there and trying to turn, the, turn to the gospel, the young man said to me, I cannot forgive my father. I can't forgive him for what he's done to my family. And I said to him, I agree. I agree. I don't think you can forgive him. Until you come to know the forgiveness of Jesus. One of Jesus' points is that those who have been forgiven a 10,000 talent debt can forgive 
100 denarii debt. Now, I do not in any way want to minimize the pain and suffering that some of us have gone through. Some of you have been terribly abused. You've been sinned against in unspeakable ways. And when the topic of forgiveness comes up in the church, you hate it. Because it reminds you of some pain or some experience. And I'm not saying that your pain or your experience is minimal. In fact, in the parable, Jesus isn't saying that the debt that the other man owed was small. It wasn't. It was actually quite large. But what Jesus is calling us to consider, what God is calling us to consider is, has anyone ever sinned against you to the degree that you sinned against God? And I know the answer to that. And I think deep down you know the answer to that. And he calls us then to be like him. This is what he says twice in, the, in Paul's epistles. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's your standard. Now, we need to be straightforward here. The forgiveness that God asks us to engage in is not, is not a, a forgiveness that's just, you know, uh, somebody sins against me, I go up to them and I say, I forgive you. Because guess what? God doesn't forgive that way. God doesn't forgive the non-repentant. He doesn't. He forgives the repentant. But let me tell you what he does do. He has settled in his heart that he is willing to forgive those who repent. And today, maybe the person that you're thinking of has already passed away. There's no possibility that they'll come to you and ask for forgiveness. Perhaps it is that you're convinced in your mind that there's somebody who will never repent of what they've done. God doesn't ask you to forgive those who are unrepentant, but what he does ask you is to settle in your heart that you want to forgive. That you're taking the burden of that forgiveness that's been weighing you down and you're saying, Lord, I want to forgive. It's not easy. And in some ways, I don't want to forgive. But I am willing to bear the pain. Do you see the thing is, anytime there's forgiveness offered, somebody accepts pain. When Jesus took our sins and offered us forgiveness, he took the pain of that. And Jesus says those who have been forgiven in this way, forgive. Now, maybe the question you're asking is, how in the world could I do that? And I think that was Peter's question. And that's why Jesus came to him in this way. Peter, when he is told, forgive 490 times, he says, how in the world could I do that? Jesus says, by remembering how much you've been forgiven. This takes humility, friends. That's why this whole passage is about humility. I'm convinced that the Apostle Peter didn't fully get this until he was sitting on a beach. You remember the situation, Peter. 
had followed Jesus. And three times, just as Jesus predicted, he denied him. And you remember in John's Gospel, it says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Could you imagine that moment? And Peter flees. We see him later. He's off fishing. This is what he used to do. Maybe he's just said, I'm no good. I guess I'm just going back to fishing. And Jesus comes and he's on the shore. Peter's in the boat. They call, Jesus calls out. When Peter knows it's Jesus, he jumps out of the boat. He swims over there. Warming himself by the fire as Jesus has prepared fish. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you know what he's saying? Peter, I'm not through with you. You denied me three times, but you're reestablished. You, you've... You've indicated your love for me. And essentially, Jesus was saying, Peter, I forgive you. Peter, I forgive you. Peter, I forgive you. And I think from that moment on, Peter never had this same question. How could I forgive 490 times? Because he sat there and he said, if this is the offer of forgiveness that God has given to me, how could I not forgive others? Friends, We may not have the exact beach scenario. We may not have that exact situation. But if you consider your own heart, you know the sinner that you are and were, and you know the forgiveness has been offered to you, and he calls upon you to forgive. Father, I thank you that this morning we've been able to consider such a rich passage that you gave to us. Oh Lord, there are some in this congregation, I imagine, who do not know your Son, the Lord Jesus. They are carrying a 10,000-talent debt. And if, Father, they die with that 10,000-talent debt, they have no hope. But you have offered them forgiveness through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have paid a 20,000-talent debt payment, not only taking their debt, but also giving your righteousness to them. If they would merely repent of their sins, trust in your Son, and believe. Thank you that that transaction is as simple as asking. You've been gracious to us, Father. Oh, Father, I pray that because there may be some others in here who at the present time have their hands around the throat of someone else. They've been forgiven, but they're struggling to forgive. Oh, Father, would you help them today to resolve in their hearts to be people of forgiveness. And oh, Father, if there's one here today who's thinking in their hearts, no, I will not forgive, may they face the warning that your scriptures tell us, that those who refuse to forgive show that they have perhaps not truly been forgiven. May they seek your face. Oh, Father, thank you for the mercy and kindness we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.